0: Welcome to Bible Fellowship Church's The Upper Room. Our podcast addresses the Christian's role in today's culture. We hope you enjoy it and find it informative. To help support our ministry, please consider becoming a subscriber and financial contributor. Links to donate are on our website at bfc 4 Now let's get going. Well, this is Scott Kimball. I'm one of the elders, and I guess now I'm an associate pastor at Bible Fellowship Church. Congratulations. And, uh, well, thank you. And uh, with me tonight is fellow elder and also associate pastor Bob Wren. How are you doing, Bob?
1: Congratulations. Thank you. Good evening, folks. <laughs> Congratulations, uh, Scott.
2: Yeah.
0: So, uh, and also with us this evening is our intrepid sound engineer, Andrew Kimball.
2: That's me. No, congratulations. Congratulations, Andrew.
0: (laughs) Congratulations on making it, right? Yeah. Well, congratulations on your interview with Don. I thought that went really well.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah. So
0: it was hard to nail
1: him down, wasn't it? Right? (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) So that took a little work, but it it was worth it. It Turned out well. So we're going to be doing some more of those interview formats here in the future. Uh, I want to encourage our audience to uh, share with other folks our podcast and try to get the word out there to more people who can listen and benefit both from the things we're saying here on the Upper Room as well as uh, the Reaching the World podcast, which is the Sunday messages with uh, primarily Pastor Don, but anybody who happens to speak that Sunday is going to end up on the uh, Reaching the World uh, podcast, and so I think it would be good uh, for folks who are regular listeners to let your friends know about it. And if the app that you're using allows you to do a, like a, you know, one to five star review or, you know, add a comment or whatever, just go ahead and put a little information in there and, and give us a five star review. And, and that'll help, uh, the algorithms to get our podcast exposed to more people. Ah, uh, with that, I want to go ahead and turn and and get us going into the Sunday message discussion. This last Sunday, and the reason I wanted to do this format this week is I thought the introduction Don did, um, kind of getting back into Isaiah again was was uh, was really good. This idea of kind of the worldview that the folks in Jesus's time had, and uh, so I wanted to start out with that, and hopefully you guys both got a chance to listen to it. I know. Uh, Bob definitely listened to it because you could hear him in one part of the the message uh, when Don was talking about the interview. You, you said it's already up.
1: Yep, yep. <laughs> that mic- got caught I on thought, the microphone. I hope they posted it, and it's like, yep, it's up. <laughs> <And already laughs> yeah. up.
0: So, so that was good. Um, so, and initially, I guess what we'll start out is what we usually start out with. What were your um, Initial impressions, themes, that kind of thing that you saw in the message that kind of spoke to you uh right up front. And Bob, I guess we'll start with you.
1: I think where he was going was um that passage in uh Isaiah, I think it was fifty nine, twenty, twenty one, something like that, where um it said the, the the a redeemer will come from Zion. And um and, and so, in the context of what um, the people of the first century would have understood and would have been looking for, what their uh, historical context would have been was they're looking for for this redeemer who's supposed to come from Zion. Um, and so that would be why they're they were heightened and and looking for a Messiah. That would be why they went out to John the Baptist and asked him, you know, um, if he was the one. And and Don even went into some detail um, a couple of weeks back where he pointed out that um, both of John's parents were of the tribe of Levi. Uh, uh, well, his father was of the tribe of Levi, but that his mother was a cousin to Mary, who was Jesus's mother. Therefore, she would have probably been of the tribe of Judah. Right. Therefore, it would have been a proper thing for them to send out and ask him that question because he would have had all of the, the, um, things needed to be the, most, you know, coming Messiah, or in this case, the Redeemer from, uh, comes from Zion. Um, but it, Don, Don took a little while to get to that. He opened up with, um, the guy with the scroll, um, from, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls of uh, the scroll actually of Isaiah. And I think on that long table, that was the entire scroll of Isaiah. And so, but what he was bringing out about that is how accurate it is. I mean, how uh, there was no um, no deviation that you would find years and years later uh, in the text, that what the text said back then, the text still says. And so there's this... highly unusual certainty in the text that we have of what it says now with rela- in relationship to what it did say, and they're the same thing. He did add in there that um, in the, the Hebrew, they started adding the vowel points, I, said, I think he said, mm-hmm. because um, as they were dispersed throughout the nations, they started losing the ability to speak it. And therefore, and since Hebrew originally was only written with consonants, um, I mean, how would you read that? I I think right now and think about the fact that he just he had some intensive courses in Hebrew. And how would you learn how to read something that didn't have any vowels in it or any punctuation marks or any breaks in the between words? It just ran consonants into consonants into consonants i i can't imagine how you would have known how to read that
0: yeah and i think he said that most letters and most words in the hebrew were three letters represented right. by three letters
1: he did say that three consonants so, for the grace yeah. of it you know it's like oh my gosh. Yep. um but uh he also did uh veer off a little bit into augustine i think a little bit Specifically speaking about Isaiah and getting back into Isaiah and what this passage says about Isaiah is that there was a period, and it still is prevalent now, where the church decided that God was done with Israel. And it God referenced a, an argument that Augustine was having with one of his acquaintances. And Augustine was going on about the, you know, there's types and models and um, things like that um but one, when the ty- the original has come there's no need for a type on you know, further on mm. and he was rationalizing that Israel was really just a type of the church to come and how God was done with Israel now and uh, no more and the guy that he was arguing with was saying well what about all these promises that God made right uh, to uh Israel and specifically this one where he says uh, the deliverer will come from zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, being Israel. Um, and this is my covenant with them, Israel, when I take away their sins. And and so, where's the church in that? You know, <laughs> and, and the guy was arguing with him, and and rightly so. I mean, how how could we think that God would be done with um Israel? Right. right. But, you know, it it's kind of like if you ask uh you know, probably the majority of the church would come out and say, "Yeah, God's done with Israel." You know, the there's
0: church. a lot of Christians that believe that. Yeah,
1: yeah. So that's kind of my my takeaway. I'm looking forward to get back into Isaiah a bit now.
0: Yeah, me too. the The little divergence into Luke I thought was pretty good because he kept tying it back into Isaiah. But right, right. But yeah, I'm I'm ready to get back into Isaiah also. Andrew, what about you? Would you come up with?
2: Yeah, so I don't really have too much more to add to that. I um, I definitely agree with Bob when he said that it, it did take him a while. It seemed like to kind of get to where he was going on, on that one, but I thought it was, I thought he, the point kind of in the middle where he stopped and started talking like kind of practically about BFC, I thought was interesting and was good and about how, how he would have tweaked his answer in that interview, You know, not to keep bringing up the interview, but. That he he said what he would have added to that answer essentially was that even if it is hard to hit a moving target and plan things for the future that, you know, we're always going to be focusing on teaching the word and standing on the Bible. And he's made a comment that, you know, our Bible fellowship, the thing that won't ever go away is the Bible part of that, even if we have to adapt and change and grow with whatever situations we're in and i don't know that that necessarily tied into what he was specifically trying to preach on in isaiah but i did think it was a an interesting point and it was kind of um i guess just something more practical that i took out of it or that i i enjoyed hearing from it
0: yeah i kind of had a similar thought he uh <clears throat> i kind of saw this whole message as sort of introductory you know that he was laying the groundwork by starting out talking about Isaiah and the Dead Sea Scrolls from Qumran and how scrolls almost a thousand years later still agreed perfectly, you know, other than the vowel points being added in, into it. And so that kind of takes away the argument that a modern biblical critic might have that says, well, you know, how can the accuracy still be maintained? It's have to, had to have been lost over the years.
2: Uh-huh.
0: And here we have this great example where now we found this older content and we compare it to what we have you know, 900 years later or whatever. And it's still virtually word for word and with very few um, things that you could consider differences. And so I thought that was really good. And I think he was kind of building up to make the point, even when he was talking about Bible Fellowship Church, that, you know, that the reason the people in Jesus's day were asking the questions they were asking is because they were so steeped in the scriptures and particularly in Isaiah. And so that today, you know, we kind of ignore Isaiah and we kind of go directly to the New Testament and and we're real deep into the teachings primarily of Paul. But Paul was pulling most of his stuff from Isaiah. And so it kind of behooves us to lay that groundwork and have a full understanding of where Isaiah is coming from in order to really understand what Paul is trying to teach us, because that's the that's the, the foundation he's building from. And so I thought the I thought the whole message was kind of trying to bring out that point that that there there was a worldview in that day, and it was all based on Isaiah. And so, for in order for us to understand the New Testament and and the teachings that are being now given to the church, we also have to have that understanding and that foundation in Isaiah and to have that worldview.
2: So Isaiah is kind of like the backbone of the Bible.
0: Yeah, I was talking to Don afterwards, and and he said basically as Romans is to us in the new Testament, as far as teaching about the church and and the mystery and all of the things that Paul goes into and how, if you could only have one book of the new Testament to, to have as your guide in this life, Romans would probably be it. Um, in the old Testament, Isaiah is that book. And so if, if you only had those two books, you had Isaiah and you had Romans, you would know enough of the revelation of God that you could have relationship with him, you know, that, that you, that you would understand this whole process of Messiah and redeemer and, and, uh, salvation and, and all of that. So I thought, I thought it was good. Any other aha moments or high points?
1: No, that's good.
2: No, I liked your, uh, your wrap up of it. How you kind of yeah. encapsulated it there at the end.
0: Yeah, I hope that's what he was going for, because that's what I
1: got out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Well, and, and if you think of the detail that Paul went to in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 9, 10, and 11, about how he was very specific about how God is not done with Israel, and that he used the passages from Israel, uh, Isaiah to prove it, you know, there, there should be no question in our mind how important Isaiah is. Right. Yeah, Absolutely. All righty. Well, good stuff, guys. Um, Let's
0: move now to the articles I sent you guys. And I sent you two articles to talk about today. And I tried to go back and come up with some questions and I ended up kind of highlighting the articles So I'd at least have some talking points where we could kind of go into it. But I wanted to start out with the first article, which is uh, why telling students to trust in experts is poor advice. And to let our listeners know, both of these articles are from fee.org fee.org and it's for and that's an acronym for the Foundation of Economic Education and they're a libertarian kind of think tank and so you kind of understand where they're coming from but but anyways this first article why telling students to trust the experts is poor advice uh, and the subtitle is intellectuals have an abundance of knowledge and influence but they too have biases and blind spots so Uh, I wanted to start out right off the bat. Um, the author is, is talking about an article from, um, another publisher, uh, the Chronicle of Higher Education. And basically with the idea that, um, disinformation and propaganda are flourishing. And, uh, you know, with all this stuff lately, and we've been hearing a lot about misinformation and disinformation and, of course with all the stuff going on in social media and everything with people being shut down and having their feeds shut off and that kind of stuff or being demonetized. Um, I just kind of curious what your guys' opinion was up front. You know, do you really think there is a problem that we're having in this country with with disinf- with yeah with disinformation and propaganda flourishing?
1: Go ahead, Andrew.
2: Given the fact that I have the least history personal history out of the three of us it seems about as like worse and in your face as it's ever been but maybe it's just coming to the surface now um i definitely think that some of the stuff that went down with like the election cycle and trump getting his all of his accounts shut down and getting banned from social media i think that i think that the the mainstream media has always kind of been pushing their narrative, you know, whatever that might be. But now I think that the social media has just as much, if not more power than they have or had. And I think that uh, that could be, it could potentially be dangerous. I think that social media could definitely be a problem if they start censoring people, they don't like what they're saying. And it is kind of an interesting balance because you don't want there does need to be some censorship. You can't just have people getting on your platform and just spouting off white supremacist stuff or whatever. Like you do have to kind of monitor your, your site, but yeah, I guess that's kind of where I am. I don't really have a, a definitive um, answer, but I, I have been thinking about this stuff lately. It does seem to be cropping up in conversations more and more.
1: I don't even know where to start. the The whole thing of, disinformation is we all have biases you know Mm -hmm. we all have um a context at which we come from things and we all approach it that way and i'm sure that if i was writing a story about you know particular thing i would write it with probably the biases that i i i come with i'm prepackaged. that's the way i would write it and so this thing that i we keep asking for we we just want um the facts just give us the facts and it seemed like in this article uh, the the article that the lady kept quoting was is this this lady in this other article were saying that that's the problem now is that people just want the raw facts and her argument was that the people aren't um smart enough to take the raw data and discern from that what's what Mm-hmm. Um, we need uh, apparently experts who know exactly what's going on so that they can explain the raw data to us because we're we're not capable of doing that and so it, we're we're battling for this thing um that we act like we've had but we've somehow lost we're we're battling for this thing um truth that we we somehow Glamorize it and think that we've had truth in the past, um, in our dealings with mankind and with each other. And if, if I really am honest about what I've lived through in these almost 62 years is that it's always been this way. It's, it, there's all, it, there's always been one side or the other that's been kind of directing it and manipulating it and guiding the way we thought. It's just now. What back then, I think the people that were guiding, manipulating the thought, were manipulating it in a way that felt good for me to think. And so now we're, I think, uh, at a crossroads, or if not past those crossroads, where we're in a place where the data is still being manipulated, uh, the truth is still being shaded, or only told uh, in portions. Um, but now it's being done in such a way that I'm not real comfortable with it. And so I I, I don't know what to do about it. I don't think there's much... Well, we keep talking about we're going to have um, hearings and laws and things like that. I don't see any of that solving this because we keep... They're, they're, on one side of it, there's this argument that there hasn't been anything. There is no... Problem here there is no disinformation here there the, the in fact, and then it says the only disinformation is coming from over here on the the right side of the aisle. There's absolutely no disinformation coming up from mm-hmm. the left side of the aisle and i'm I'm avoiding saying conservative or liberal or anything like that because I think in reality we all have some conservative viewpoints, and then we're a bit more liberal on some things uh, mm-hmm. in, in the way we think. And so for me to say that I'm a, a staunch conservative or staunch liberal, it would not be accurate. But um, the, the thing I just find almost unbelievable is that both sides have done exactly the same thing that they're, they're, they're accusing each other of. Mm. And, and more so, I would say, uh, you know, all the things that we've just seen happen in this recent election cycle, And the four years prior to it, there was election fraud. There was this, there was that, you know, and and these ongoing investigations into it. um, And there was nothing to investigate. And they investigated for four years and they found nothing. And now we actually have something where it appears to have been. There were some some hanky panky going on now and we don't even investigate. Hmm. And so.
0: no. if you read The New York Times, they're telling you it's baseless claims
1: right and yeah and so th- this is even though about, you have
0: thousands of sworn affidavits
1: <laughs> it's <yeah>. baseless claims <laughs> and there are being there are already people that have been charged and are being prosecuted already i'm currently under it um but we're told the experts have looked at it and that's where we i'm circling back to this article is we're we're telling that the experts in the in the form of the uh the politicians the um Professors at universities, um, the uh, not all doctors, not all professors, not all pro- politicians, but a certain group of them have looked at this and determined that there's nothing to see here. Let's move along. And, and I, it it was it was funny how um, the lady writing the article likened it to doctors um, during the uh, plague in the Middle Ages. Who didn't wash their hands and didn't realize that as they went to the next person? They were just contaminating, passing on the contamination from person to person, mm-hmm. and didn't even realize that they had been contaminated with bias as well.
0: Yeah, I think um, I, I think you make some good points there, and I think the the idea that disinformation or propaganda is a growing problem. I don't I don't know that it's necessarily a growing problem. I think it's always been there. I think part of the issue, though, is that we've got um, the left controls all of pretty much all of the news media. They control all of academia. They control the culture. They control Hollywood. They control the administrative state. And so anything that doesn't kind of follow follow their narrative, for whatever reason, they don't see it as a difference of opinion. They're automatically throwing it to the next level and saying it's disinformation. It's propaganda. It's like, well, no, we're all looking at the same facts, if you will, and we just have a different opinion on what these facts say, and then and they automatically turn around and say, "No, that's disinformation, and they shut you down, yep, you know the oligarchs of of the big tech you know that run social media, they fall right into that, and the fact checkers that they get to supposedly check facts are all left- wing organizations, you know, and so it's only it's only people. Um, That have a difference of opinion with their viewpoint that are getting shut down. And I, I would argue that it's not so much disinformation or propaganda as much as it is, is these are just people who have an honest difference of opinion with you. And some of these people are doctors and lawyers. I was thinking about the people who all signed the
1: um, Great Barrington,
0: Barrington? yeah, the Great Barrington thing. Yeah, you know, that was a whole bunch of doctors that all signed that and saying that basically the way we were handling COVID wasn't right. But they immediately got shut down as disinformation, right? And they were no, they just had a difference of opinion.
1: They were experts, yeah,
0: and they supposedly they're experts by your definition.
1: These people are experts. Yeah.
0: It is kind of a mentality, though, that we've had since the beginning of the last century um, with the, the whole executive branch of our government and the expansion of all of these federal agencies that um, the idea behind having all these federal agencies was that you pulled the brightest and the best and the most qualified people to solve these large national problems. Right. So you had like the agency I work for, the geological survey out there mapping and and checking finding resources and you know doing all these things to try to give the nation a better handle on what our nation's natural resources were and they went out and they did it and you had people with the bureau of reclamation that went out and built dams and you know did all the stuff they did in the early part of the last century and for a while i think it worked but i think like anything else bureaucracy just grows and uh and pretty soon you know, now we've got all all these agencies that are supposedly full of experts <laughs> that uh, may not be your best and brightest anymore, unfortunately. You know, and you hate to say that, but the way the federal government works these days, if you really are super smart and you really do have expertise in a certain area, chances are you're going to get gobbled up by private industry. You're not going to be working for the government. And so... You know, again, you don't actually have true experts uh that are that are making policy decisions, you know, which is the issue I have with it is I don't care if two people have an argument or have a difference of opinion over the facts, but when one of them decides to make policy on it, I'm hoping we're actually getting it right.
1: <laughs> I I think the the thing that does seem to be different um in the, the times that we're living in now is that um, whereas we used to have some dialogue and discussion back and forth, and and maybe we would never agree uh, about that, it seems like now um, if you're not on the right side of an issue um, and you can't discuss it um, because you will automatically be demonized by it to the point of making it a criminal offense. That's where we're about to get really creepy here is that Just because I don't get on board with a particular policy or something in in the direction that um, the executive orders happen to be going uh, this week, then all of a sudden it can be, you know, labeled as a hate crime or something. And the next thing I know, I'm having to defend myself against it and there will be no defense against it. Right. Exactly. So off you go. Well, and even, even before it gets to criminal,
0: I mean, just the fact that we now have a culture that essentially has made bullying, I mean, they made such a big deal out of bullying, what, five, 10 years ago? And now bullying is considered a normal tactic to shut down opposition. Yeah. So if, <laughs> if you get online and you have a difference of opinion with somebody, suddenly you have a half a dozen people with a with a stronger viewpoint, just shutting you down. Basically. I mean, I'm not even on Facebook anymore. I, I hardly ever get on social media anymore. Cause I just got tired of it. I'd throw an opinion about it, something I had out there. I thought I had a thoughtful reasoning on why I thought this and I would just immediately just get barraged by people that, that disagreed with me. You know, some of it, my own family, you know, um, a brother of mine and a sister-in-law that would just jump on board and beat me down, you know, with just paragraph and paragraph, and I would come back with a response and it would just, it would never end. No, no. You know, if I, if I didn't quit, it would never end, you know, cause they couldn't be wrong. So yeah, it's, uh, it it's, it's a tough thing and, and it really is bullying. It, it's exactly what it is, is they're using their, their voice to bully you into submission into silence. So, yeah. So, you know, coming back around to the article, why telling students to trust the experts is poor advice. Um I think the author's trying to make the the case here that, yeah, we need to get take information from those experts and weigh it, but ultimately, as individuals, we have to make the decision for you know what's right for us, what's right for our life, and uh well, it kind of made me it.
2: think of like in church if like our church, pastor Donald say, don't just believe this because I'm telling you, go and read it for yourself go and learn it go and study it go and and then if you have questions or if you come up with something else let's talk about it you know there's there are churches or you know do, denominations that you, you you just take what the priest says or the preacher or whatever at face value and that's all you get you're not supposed to actually talk to god yourself or study it yourself and that's kind of what popped in my head thinking about this was We're just supposed to take what these people tell us as fact and just go on our way as opposed to doing any research on our, on our own or any critical thinking, you know,
0: and yeah, well, and they would tell you that you're not even capable of
2: it. Right. That's what I was going to say. Bob said that earlier about how you you don't even, you don't have the right piece of paper that says you can have an opinion on this. You know, you didn't go to the right school or get the right degree. So you don't, you don't know what you're talking about.
0: Yep. Yeah, that was the main response when they, when they were talking about climate change and they had all these scientists on board, you know, saying, talking about the dangers of climate change. And then they had an equal, enough, if not larger number of people that were saying, no, you're overblowing this. This isn't as big a deal as you're making it out to be. And they and they started looking at, at the people who were saying that and they're like, well, who are you? You're not a... You know, you don't have a degree in meteorology, you don't have a degree in climate, you don't have a degree in, you know, whatever the subject is, you're just a physical scientist or you're just, you know, this, that or the other. Again, you don't have the right credentials or the right piece of paper to have an opinion on it, even though you may be working in the field that's directly studying the thing because your credentials aren't right. You know, you're not allowed to have an opinion. Yep. We need to get back. Unfortunately, I think we've already lost that. part of our society where we used to believe in a thing called absolute truth and now truth is relative so it's you know and even agreeing on what the facts are people will argue with you argue with you over the facts you know you'll you'll lay out a set of facts and say okay this comes from the fbi this is what they say oh well that that's i don't believe that it's like right (laughs) You, you know I mean, they're they're just messing. You know, they're playing mon- funny numbers with statistics or whatever. It's like, okay, so what are we calling truth here? You know, thankfully in the church we have scripture, but even with scripture, that's hard because people read it with diff- with a different hermeneutic. So we all kind of come at it from different angles, and that causes all kind of arguments and division even within the church about something that should be absolute truth. So I don't know. Some of it's just humanity.
1: Well, it's all humanity. Most of it, yeah, it's
2: just humanity. You're not going to be able to fix it.
0: Well, a lot of it's humanity, but a lot of it is there's a certain subset of people within any society that think they should be in control. True. And that's where you get into the trouble. The Templars.
1: Was that in this article? Uh, They were quoting somebody that said, well, you know, the problem with most of us is that we all think we know the right answer. Uh, or maybe yeah. that's the next, uh, next article, I can't remember, but you know that, that, that's an inherent human, human uh, tendency is that we all think we know the, the truth.
0: Yeah, I think that was one of the things I, I highlighted in the article. It says there is certainly bias on the right, just as there is bias on the left and everywhere in between. The reason is not so much politics as human nature, our predilection to believe we know
1: best. Right. <laughs> that's it.
0: <laughs> you know, and that's very true. That's very true. And that's why, you know, humility is such a, a great uh, personal trait. All right. Um, second article I gave you guys to look at was about uh, probably my favorite president in the last century was Calvin Coolidge. And the more I read about this guy and understand about this guy, the more I like him. And this was kind of an interesting article because it was released on the 20th, which was their inauguration day. And it was before Biden had actually given his inauguration, so they, were, they didn't have anything to actually do any comparisons with. But they wanted to highlight Calvin Coolidge's inauguration when he was made president and uh, commenting on the fact that he was, uh, how do they put it?
2: Uh, while you look for it, I'll throw out my favorite line from this article, which was sure. Biden is not known for such eloquence. We'll find out if his speech writers are. (laughs)
1: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I remember that one.
0: Yeah. Here it is. is in any event. He will deserve a pat on the back if his address is half as good as that of previous president who wrote his own speeches. That would be our 30th Calvin Coolidge, whose inaugural address in March 4th, 1925 was both profound and substantive. So he wrote his own speeches. I mean, that's how smart this guy was he didn't He didn't have speech writers doing that stuff for him, and he just seemed like a super practical kind of guy,
2: yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking reading it was he just seemed to have a an actual grasp on what actual working Americans thought and felt and how they lived. like the things he said actually made sense to someone you know from our perspective speaking generally um Mm -hmm. whereas most of the time when you listen to a politician talk it's just all this fluff and word salad and nonsense and the little excerpts from his speech in here just they just seem to make sense it 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 came across like he was actually in tune with his country yeah i think so
1: but there's this line uh the guy said the last thing you would hear." from the lips of Calvin Coolidge were arrogant pretensions to knowledge or grand plans to fundamentally transform America. He was smart enough to know what his job was, to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, not to ignore it, shred it, or rewrite it. Yeah, that is a good line too. I mean, when's the last (laughs) time we had a president, Republican or Democrat, whose main job and purpose and function was to preserve protect and defend the constitution every one of them used that pen with executive orders and that's yep. not constitutional not really you know you've got a legislative branch let them legislate
0: right well the the executive order was supposed to be something that the president would sign that would only affect the agencies within the executive branch and so he could he could put out an order saying i want all my agencies to begin to do this. And in the day of Calvin Coolidge, there weren't that many agencies. But now that the executive branch has grown to be so huge, and there's literally hundreds of thousands of people that are employed in the executive branch, when the president signs an executive order and says, I want the executive branch to start doing thus and so, it has a huge national impact. I mean, it's it's much more than it was in, in well, Calvin Coolidge's day.
1: And likewise, it, I mean, it radiates out because let's say it's the Department of Education that, it, and so, okay, he's got a secretary of education. And so now for your school or your state or whatever it is to continue to get the, the federal funding that it needs to stay open, if it doesn't get in line with that executive order, then you don't get it. So right. even though you're not a part of it, You were forced to comply simply because you're beholden to the the government for it, you know? Yep. So it's sort of a way of going around the legislative process. Why do we have representation um, if that's the way it's going to be done? Oh, that's not how it's done, though. Of course it is.
0: (laughs) Every time. Yeah, there was some uh, excerpts, you know, from his inauguration address, and there's some pieces in there that I highlighted. One was, uh, I think in the first section where they're quoting him, we're about midway down. He says, we must realize that human nature is about the most constant thing in the universe and that the essentials of human relationship do not change. And I thought that was brilliant. I thought that that really showed an understanding, really, of scripture. I don't know what, what kind of... Uh, Christian Calvin Coolidge was. I want to say he was he was a Protestant for sure, but I can't I don't remember what um denomination he belonged to, probably Methodist, but um but I thought this was just something that that really showed a a good sense of character about knowledge of scripture and understanding human nature, which is something unfortunately our politicians today don't seem to understand.
1: He did reference the higher was it higher power? Mm-hmm. i I think he said it differently than that though because higher power is almost too nonchalant yeah he um I'm looking for it now, and I can't find it anyway let's see, and the
0: next one I did where you he was talking about being an American and what it what it meant to be an american and uh and he says, but if we wish to continue to be distinctively American, we must continue to make that term comprehensive enough to embrace the legitimate desires of a civilized and enlightened people. Determined in all their relations to pursue a conscientious and religious life. So, and we cannot permit ourselves to be narrowed and dwarfed by slogans and phrases. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) That
2: doesn't happen.
1: Well, yeah. (laughs) And and think about that in relation to now. I mean, what he was saying is embrace, embrace the culture that you have. Embrace this thing of being an American. Um, but at the same time, he was also saying, but don't make it so narrow. Your, your vision of what an American is. Don't make that so narrow that you, you don't include everybody who is a process of this great melting pot in America here, you know? Right. And, and so it was okay to be an American. You know, you didn't have to apologize, um, for what somebody, you know, in your historical past did 300 years ago. Yeah, we all do nasty, rotten things, man. I'm sorry. No, for sure. Yeah,
0: and he was he was made president. This was his inaugural address in 1925, which means he was president during the Roaring Twenties.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, when he had prohibition and organized crime and Al Capone and all that kind of stuff going on. So he, I don't think he had any... Um, He definitely didn't have any blinders on or whatever as far as what human nature was really
1: like. (laughs) (laughs) He had a good grasp on uh, the the situation of the taxpayer. He said the men and women of this country who toil are the ones who bear the cost of the government. Every dollar that we carelessly waste means that their life will be so much more meager. And every dollar that we prudently save means that their life will be so much more abundant. Economy is idealism in its most practical form. He, he understood this thing about having a budget and sticking to it and not mm-hmm. spending yeah. money frivolously. And he understood that because you, the reason you didn't do it, it was because the burden fell upon the taxpayer, you and me. You don't do Well, that. yeah.
0: And I think he understood that I don't know if he was in into Austrian economics or any of that kind of thing. I don't, I'm not sure if that had really made the scene yet in the United States at that time. But it seemed like he had a really good grasp that if the money stayed in the people's pockets, they were able to do more with it than if the government took it from them and then redistributed it back out again. That there's something lost in that exchange that you can't get back. And I think I think that's... Brilliant. And I think that really goes um with just common sense economics. We understand, and I, I can't tell you the number of people I've told this before, the worst possible way you can solve a problem is to have the federal government tackle it. Because immediately half the money you put towards whatever the problem is is going to go to administrative costs, is not actually going to go to the problem. And I could tell you, like in our welfare system in the federal government, um, you know, people get all upset when they go look at the the ratings for, um, like nonprofit groups. And if, you know, if the administrative cost is like more than 10 or 20%, you know, that that rest of that money is not going to the, to the people that you're giving the money for, like, say, um, like a Christian food, um, program, you know, where we're sending food to the middle East or something like that to feed starving kids. Right. People get all in a in a in a tither if your administrative costs to manage that program are more than like ten percent, but the government the federal government routinely spends at least fifty percent of everything that comes in on administrative costs does not go towards whatever the program is supposed to go towards, and that's true of every agency i mean the federal government's the worst possible way to tackle a problem
1: yeah his quote on that uh was the wise and correct course to follow in taxation and other economic legislation is not to destroy those who have already secured success, but to create conditions under which everyone will have a better chance to be successful. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, you know, just like Scott was saying, if you overtax, um, the people who have already been successful have their own businesses who are employing other people. Um, all you do is then drive them underground or overseas or something like that rather than change the or tax in such a way that you create opportunities for everybody to have yep. that type of success you can't You can't make them have that success, but you can create an atmosphere in which it's possible for them to have that success
2: and I think that's that, exactly
1: right that's what the American dream used to be with mm-hmm. that you can come here, work hard, and be a success. And you still, and can. in large part, it still is. Yeah, you still can. You still can.
0: Oh, yeah. For those There's people. a lot of people that still come to the United States and manage to be successful, even with
1: all the hurdles. But the, the key to it is, is that you have to be willing to work hard to do it. Exactly. And make sacrifices. You have to make des- choices and decisions um, that are going to get you to that success, uh, and me- which yep. means you also choose not to do some some of the things, too.
0: Well, in the two sentences before the one you just read, this is something you never hear a politician say these days. This country believes in prosperity. It is absurd to suppose that it is envious of those who are already prosperous.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. And we're going to make those top 5% pay.
0: Oh, yeah. We're going to get them. Yeah. No, I, I thought it was a really good article. Were there any other things in the article that really stuck out at you guys?
1: Well, he, he did mention somewhere in there that um, he was sure because Biden's speech hadn't come out or whoever's speech was going to come out. doesn't even meant mm-hmm. it was Biden's, um, that they they care for the American people and that they were going to do X, Y and Z. And he pointed out how Coolidge actually really did care for the American uh, population and that I yep. think that was lined in. And he realized that his main job was to, you know, uphold the Constitution so that they could be free people. Yeah, I thought the final line of Calvin Coolidge in this article
0: was really good. Those who disregard the rules of society are not exhibiting a superior intelligence, are not promoting freedom and and independence, are not following the path of civilization, but are displaying the traits of ignorance or servitude of savagery and treading the way that leads back to the jungle. Yeah, And I thought that was, I thought that was really good yeah. because, and look at, look at what we're doing as a society. We're tearing each other apart. We're all dividing up in our little tribes and camps and we're attacking each other, you know, and some of that's by design and some of that's just human nature. But it's, that's kind of where politics has gone these days. Yep. Good stuff. So sad. <laughs> we need another Calvin Coolidge. <laughs> <laughs> On a lighter note, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah, I wonder if a Calvin Coolidge could even get elected today.
1: Probably not. You know.
0: You know, because I mean today it's all about what are you gonna give me? You know, I mean we we elect the people we deserve. That's that's the bottom line. And so we elect we elect folks that promise to give us stuff.
1: I remember uh I went to one of those um a women's resource center dinners that they have annually for raising money and alan Keyes was the speaker there and he had been he was a former ambassador to the un brilliant guy yeah uh, he was very sharp speaker, and he spoke and man you could have heard a pin drop in that place and so he ran for president that year and i was like all right this guy has got it you know and i i just shocked at how, in the primary process, he didn't get any traction. He didn't get any votes, yeah. you know. And I was like, "This this guy would do something great as president," you know. But so, I mean, he might have been the next Coolidge. And right? It, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm sure they're out there. The problem is, is that the, he's not what the people wanted. Yep, yeah,
0: that's true. Alrighty, righty. Well, I got a couple of announcements to go over. Um, we got a thing coming up February 23rd through the 25th called Versity and uh, Versity spelled V-Y-R-S-I-T-Y uh, and Colorado Biblical University World Theologies and Why They Matter. And it's being hosted at our church, Bible Fellowship Church on 7030 Minj Avenue in Past Christian, Mississippi. And we'll uh, have some information on our website. If folks want to sign up to come to that, it will be a in-person conference. So, um, and there will be some limited seating because we're not a really big church. So, um, if you want to come check that out, uh, like I said, you can go to our website to get more information on that. And also I had a, um, um, a promotional from, our fellow elder, Jacob Davis, who sent me a thing from the Voice of the Martyrs. They're doing a virtual conference uh, called Imprisoned for Christ. It's a virtual event. They're doing it Friday, March 5th at 6.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. So, And registration for that is free. You can sign up and uh, check it out when it comes. It sounds like they've got a pretty good lineup
2: of speakers for that.
0: Uh, any other announcements or anything you guys know of that we should
1: throw out here? Not that I can think of. Well, I'm just reading over that uh, uh, Voice of the Martyrs. It, it's free. It's a free conference. Wow. Mm-hmm. All right. Going to register now. There you go.
0: <laughs> all right, folks. Uh, if you're listening to us, you know, take some time and pray that God will allow you to invite people to church this week. I mean, we've been talking about truth and absolute truth and, and learning and knowing the scriptures. And really, where that's all all that begins. And so you need to be plugged into a local church and especially a church that teaches the word. And uh, if you don't have a church home, we invite you to come to Bible Fellowship Church and check us out. Um, Also, I want you to pray for your fellow believers. We've got several people I know in our own church that are struggling with uh, recovering from COVID and cancers and all kind of different stuff. And Bob keeps tabs on all of that. Uh, We just need to be in prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ that, um, you know, that God, God will strengthen them, that he'll work through whatever, uh, whatever they're going through in life right now. And that he'll send the helpers, the, the people in their life and, and maybe even perfect strangers, you know, who are there to kind of help them and their family through these, through these times, you know, we're humans and we all go through difficult times in life. And it's a lot easier to go through those times when you know, you have people praying for you and you have brothers and sisters in Christ that are willing to to come and and, uh, lend a hand and help you out as they can. So uh, with that, um, anything final you guys want to add tonight?
1: Always always good to be here.
0: (laughs) Well, very good. I appreciate it. And uh, if you would, Bob, would you close us in prayer tonight?
1: Sure. Father, uh, we've talked about some serious things. Uh, And if we did not know you, if we had not been... um, Given peace with you through your Son Jesus, that we might be just terribly disturbed, um, worried, frantic about the future and what's to come. But where you've put us is where you've put us. You knew when we were be, would be born. You knew that we would be here in this in this generation, and it's the generation that you placed us in to be your church. And I pray that we would, as Paul said to the Ephesians, I pray that we would walk worthy of your calling of us and that we would remember, come what may, you know, whatever form of government we end up having, whatever taxation scheme comes down the road, whatever types of um, things that we end up living under as um, citizens of this country, that we would remember that there are brothers and sisters all over the world that live in horrendous conditions. And so we're not um, immune to that, but you've called us to walk worthy in, in spite of that. And that means we, we do things differently. We see things differently. We love those who we're in contact with, and we love them across the board, top to bottom, um, not just meeting their personal needs and things like that, but meeting that spiritual need that we love them enough that we tell them about you. And that we tell them there's a way to have peace with their creator once again. Um, and that they may know you and know that peace as well. And that when your son does return and he does call us all, that we would meet them together um, in the air and we'll meet him all together. I, I pray for all of the the folks that Scott has mentioned. There, There's just all kinds of illnesses and sicknesses that are going on. And I pray that we would continue to be your hands and feet, your comfort, your voice, um, um, and all those things. Um, And I pray that we would not neglect the building up of one another as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
2: Amen.
0: I hope you enjoyed our discussion today and found it thought-provoking. The Upper Room is a Bible Fellowship Church production. The opinions discussed by our guests are just opinions and random thoughts at the time of recording and do not necessarily reflect the doctrine or stated beliefs of Bible Fellowship Church.